Welcome to the Energy Gang podcast from Green Tech Media, our inaugural edition for the week of June 6th, 2013. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media, joined by our newly formed gang, brought together from the halls of Washington, D.C. and the streets of New York City to pontificate and educate on the week's energy, clean tech, and environmental news. I'm joined by Jigger Shaw in New York City. Jigger, hello. Hey, this is a great idea. And Catherine Hamilton in Washington, D.C. Hey, Catherine. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. Good to hear from you guys. Um, Before we hear more from you, I just want to introduce the format quickly and, and talk about what the podcast is all about. Uh, So we've had this research-focused show at Green Tech Media for a while now, and this is a new format. It's a chance for us to bring together a regular cast of energy experts for a more lively, free-flowing discussion on the forces driving clean tech. And so starting today and coming out almost every week, we're going to be publishing a digest of recent energy news moderated by myself and distilled by my co-hosts Jigger Shah and Catherine Hamilton. It is a really simple concept. We're going to pick three topics that are hot each week, have a dialogue on those topics, and then at the end of the show, we're going to have a segment called uh, Tell Us Something We Don't Know, which will bring in maybe a surprise topic or something novel happening in the week's news. So, again, very simple format, and with that brief explanation, I want to bring in the other members of the Energy Gang. Uh, Again, from New York City is Jigger Shah. He is an energy futurist who probably needs no introduction to many of you. He founded Sun Edison and was until recently the CEO of the Carbon War Room. He now runs his own consulting firm, Jigger Shah Consulting, and is what is undoubtedly a highlight of his career is now a regular on the Energy Gang podcast. Jigger, what say you to our listeners on this first episode of the Energy Gang? I'm going to have to update my CV right away with this highlight. (laughs) Glad to be here. And in Washington, D.C., where I'm located, we have Catherine Hamilton, who is another deeply knowledgeable and seasoned energy expert uh, who's been an advisor on clean tech investment at the firm Good Energies, has been deeply immersed in smart grid issues as former president of the Gridwise Alliance and recently founded the clean energy communications and government relations firm 38 North Solutions. Catherine, we are thrilled to have you on as a member of the Energy Gang. Uh, Introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks so much. It's just great to be here with you two guys. Um, I would say, first off, considering I've been in D.C. almost 30 years, uh, I'm an optimist. Um, Not only do I have four kids, which, you know, you have to be an optimist, right? But I'm also uh, always am hopeful. I'm always hopeful that the Congress, that the administration will come up with smart public policy around clean energy. I've, you know, I've dedicated my life to it 15 years in the technology space and 15 years in policy space. And I'm optimistic. So that's that's what I'm bringing here is the optimism and hopefulness. Excellent. And Jigger, you've been in the D.C., Maryland area area for a long time. You're now in New York. What's your style? How do you approach the issues? You're uh, known to to uh, be somewhat combative and, and counterintuitive in your points. You like to challenge people in the industry. How do you generally see issues and what do you bring to the table? Well, you know, I think like Catherine, I'm an optimist, but I think I think you have to make your own optimism. You know, I, I think that this notion that the trend line or the um, or the overall macro picture is going to to you know sort of help us get to our goal line 
I think is wrong. I think it's going to take an extraordinary amount of willpower and, um, and combativeness and fight to actually get what we want. Uh, so there you have it. This is your energy gang, and, and get used to this group because you're going to hear from us a lot. Uh, so I want to just get right into our topics of the episode. Uh, firstly, we're going to look at changes in Obama's cabinet, including the new energy secretary, and some possible shifts among Republicans on energy and the possibility of tax reform in Washington. Uh, then we'll look at what's happening in the electric vehicle market. Tesla just paid back its loan guarantee. The U.S. just surpassed its 100,000th vehicle on the road. Uh, and also some other leading former electric vehicle companies are facing some trouble. How significant are these milestones? And finally, we'll look at uh, state battles over renewable energy targets, net metering, and other utility incentives. And for a while, it was looking like dark days in many states. But we're going to ask, is it really as bad as it seems? So first, let's talk about what's happening in Washington. All of us have lived in Washington and really focus on what's happening on the Hill and in the White House and different agencies. And we've seen a lot of change in recent months as we enter Obama's second term. Uh, most notably, we have a new energy secretary, Ernest Moniz, who comes from MIT. He has previous experience in the Department of Energy, has government experience, uh, comes from academia as well. Uh, you know, a lot of people supportive of the nominee. He got through the confirmation process easily. Uh, certainly a different experience than some of other nominees of Obama's. Uh, environmental groups are a little skeptical about him because of his support of fracking and nuclear. Uh, but generally, I think a lot of people in the business are supportive of him considering his experience at DOE and his support for renewables generally. Jigger, I know you are not terribly thrilled about the pick. You wrote a piece before he uh, was nominated, and you say that that both Secretary Chu and now Moniz and Obama have not been terribly good at renewable energy deployment. Explain your thoughts. Well, you know, I think that Ernie Moniz has an, a distinguished resume and certainly is a great choice as uh, as Department of Energy uh, Secretary. I just think that he's not our ideal choice because we just came through four years of basically converting DOE into the Department of Energy Research. Um, I understand that they did a lot of deployment because of the stimulus money they had to put out, but that wasn't really the bias of Secretary Chu. And I think what you're going to see out of Ernie Moniz is the same uh, bias towards R&D and away from deployment. And I just think that, that we need someone who's really thinking through the issues around the politics side of this, not just how does technology set us free, which is, uh, I think, the common thread between uh, Secretary Chu and Ernie Moniz. Now, Ernie Moniz has, has clearly said that deployment is a priority and seems to bridge the gap nicely between R&D and deployment. Um, is this really as worrisome as, as you say it is? Well, you know, I don't... You know, We'll have to see where he comes out of this. But I think that if you think about the real challenges we have in deploying solar at scale, which you know, in the last four years, Australia has gone from almost zero to almost 10% of its entire population getting solar on their rooftops, uh, you can imagine that I think the government could play a better role in matching that success here in the U.S. Catherine, what do you think? 
Yeah, I actually think we shouldn't underestimate the fact that he was at DOE before and he knows how it works. Um, you know, secretaries get in there traditionally and then they're taken in a back room and they're said, you know, this this agency is really about the weapons <laughs> and, and they get all bummed out because they thought they were going to do all this great stuff. And I think, you know, Ernie Moniz brings this total understanding of DOE, he understands the stovepipes, he understands what the issues are and how hard it is to really get things done. I mean, it is a massive, massive organization with tons of employees, a lot of whom, you know, they're all very smart people, but a lot of whom, you know, they sort of, they want to make sure that they just keep their program going despite the administration. Not, not to say they don't support it, but it's like, hey, I've got something I'm working on. It's really good and I want to keep it going. And I'm hearing from DOE employees really good things. They say, you know what? He's listening to us. They had a town hall meeting. You know, the people are saying, you know, this may be different. He's been here. He knows what we're about. He understands how we work. And I think that can't be underestimated. I think you'll be able to get a lot done. And in that town hall meeting, he mentioned so much about renewables and about how hard we have to push on them. He's very bullish on solar. He wants to make sure that geothermal gets you know more airtime. He wants to bring down the cost of offshore wind. So I actually am pretty hopeful on this one. So a lot of environmental groups, when he was first nominated, issued some press releases very skeptical of Dr. Moniz, uh, saying that he was a major supporter of fracking, that he had taken oil and gas money while at the Energy Initiative and therefore was somehow potentially in the pocket of the oil and gas industry. Um, Have you seen environmental groups level their messaging a little bit? Have they been supportive of uh, Dr. Moniz? And is his support of this all of the above strategy, which includes oil and gas um, and nuclear, a worrisome thing? Uh, Catherine, what do you think about that? Yeah, actually, like he doesn't have as much jurisdiction as you might give him credit for. So a lot of this regulatory, a lot of this is going to be a regulatory play that EPA or FERC are going to deal with rather than DOE. I mean, he'll set some R&D policy. He'll set some overarching policy. I'm not as worried about it. I honestly think that is their job. It's the job of the environmental community to do that and to push him on it. That's good. Um, you know, I'm thinking he's probably going to be, uh, you know, pretty level-headed about it. Mm. Well, but- you know, but the thing is, Stephen, and I'd love your opinion on this, is that the challenge with this is this is very in line with Obama's all-of-the-above approach, right, which is that we're not channeling our resources, right? What DOE could do without actually, you know, changing programs is provide guidance and leadership to where we're going on energy, as opposed to saying, we're going to support everything, we're going to be against nothing. That just leads to chaos in the investment climate. And this is where we are today, right? We, we truly have no leadership to the investment community on what the priorities of the administration really are, whether it's climate change and the fear that we all have of the repercussions of climate change, or whether it's basically a you know, economic uh, argument where we just want to be an energy superpower and we want to try to counterbalance some of the global forces and we don't really, you know, want to prioritize climate change over other things. Yeah, I think that this is a, a major issue and one that supporters of fossil fuels and supporters of clean tech and climate action have been grappling with for a long time. And then sitting in the middle of that, the investment community. I mean, Obama has taken a lot of flack on both sides because of this all of the above approach. And I think it's very clear that the administration 
is very supportive of the all of the above approach. It's not lip service. They've done a lot to support oil and gas, and they've done a lot to support renewables. And it is confusing to some people. Um, I think that the administration will, whether or not they choose in the second term, uh, is, is up for debate, and I don't think they will make a choice. But if the administration is serious about addressing climate change and making it a top three priority, as the uh, president said in an in interview before embarking on his second term, they are going to have to make some hard choices. Uh, some of that will will lean on Dr. Moniz. Some of that will uh, be in, within the EPA. Some of that will be within the White House itself. Um, I, I don't think it's going to shake out any differently than it has over the last four years, however. And I think the all of the above strategy is what we're going to get. I think that uh, the Department of Energy is clearly very supportive of both renewables R&D and renewables deployment. Um, the president has requested a fiscal year 2014 budget that is significantly higher than the fiscal year 2012 budget, whether or not uh, with an increase in renewable spending, electric vehicles spending. So I, I think that it, we it's very difficult to rail on the president uh, for his renewable energy policies if you're supportive of renewables. However, if you're serious about climate change, this all-of-the-above approach is somewhat disturbing for people because it's very clear that the Obama administration very much does want to do it all. So so I think that we should turn next to the conversation in Washington, and we've just come through this year and a half, two years of a really vitriolic conversation around clean tech. The, the bankruptcy of Solyndra really sparked it all. We've seen a variety of other bankruptcies or close failures at companies supported by the stimulus package, and... Uh, Republicans have been extremely critical of the administration for its uh, government support of renewable energy companies. With that said, uh, you know, Republicans are starting to talk about how they may moderate their positions. And we saw an interesting speech from Tennessee Senator Lamar Alexander uh, at a national lab uh, last week talking about the importance of uh, renewables R&D, the importance of renewable energy deployment, um, still sticking to his talking points on repealing the production tax credit and not picking winners and losers, but bringing up climate change as an important thing to address, which is out of step with a lot of Republicans now in Congress. And, and you know, some in the press, some onlookers said this could be the moment when Republicans – perhaps start moderating themselves as they move into 2016. Catherine, what do you think about this? Is this significant at all, or is this just one speech from a guy who is not always in step with other Republicans? I mean, let's keep in mind that for the last four years, the entire organizing principle of the Republicans was to not have Obama elected to a second term. So everything they did was about that. Um, we didn't get a lot done. So I think now people, now people are in, again, re-election mode, but for themselves. Lamar Alexander's up this time. Um, I don't think it's a GOP message. I think it's a, it's a state re-election politics message. Um, now, that's not to downplay the fact that what National Lab 
was he? He was in Oak Ridge in his state. He was in right. Tennessee. And in Tennessee, the things, you know, he listed a whole lot of things that have a tie to Tennessee, EVs especially. He has lots of plants in Tennessee. But uh, solar and storage, advanced biofuels, green buildings. Also, he loves fusion and, uh, you know, sequestration and nuclear waste issues. You know, he's uh, small modular reactors and all that. But so but all of the stuff he listed has to do with what works in Tennessee, right? Because that's what he cares about. And in fact, that's why all of these guys are elected is to try to take care of their own states. What this says to me is that he's gettable on some stuff, okay? He's not gettable on wind. He hates wind. He'll never like wind. But he is gettable on solar or EVs. So, like, there's some things. Everybody is gettable on something. Everybody can be approached about something because every state has something, some kind of resource that is clean, some technology that's clean that you can get to them on. And and in the end, all politics are local. He also, I would say, he's super important because he's on Senate Energy and Natural Resources, but he's also the ranking member on the Appropriations Energy and Water Subcommittee. So he's an, he's an important member. That's right. So he can tr- he helps control the DOE's budget. Jigger, do you find any significance here at all? Well, I think Catherine's right. And the thing which was interesting about the Bush administration is is that they used this um, fact that Catherine's talking about to their advantage. That's why they passed the Energy Policy Act of 2005, the Energy Policy Act of 2007, and then the updates in 08 was because they said, well, we'll give you your pet program if you vote for these other pet programs. And then they put together this hodgepodge together and understand what we got from that, right, which is we got a 30% tax credit for the solar industry, which we'd never had before in 2005, and we had a long-term extension of the solar tax credit in 2008. So, you know, when you decide that you actually want to make the sausage as smelly and as awful as it might be, you can actually get some really good sausage out of the process. And um, and I just think this administration really hasn't been interested in figuring out that play, right? So we haven't gotten a national RPS. We haven't gotten some of the things that you could get if you really wanted to engage the Republicans like Lamar Alexander and others where they might actually be open to negotiating. Yeah, but what we're talking about is a much more hostile House. It's Republicans in the Senate are much less hostile than what we see in the House. And it's just it seems quite clear that it's not necessarily an administration problem. It's that uh, we have a, a, a Tea Party dominated Republican Party in the House that is very resistant to any sort of national policy on renewables or climate change. I would say it's not. I mean, it can be dominated, but that's not the majority. I would say on the House side, there are a few people with a gas can and a match in their hands, but not all of them. So what you have to do is try to get the ones that are not like that. And they're, they're, they're a bunch of them. They're a bunch of them who, remember, they're all from districts who have all kinds of things going on. Um, you know, most of the wind is in red states and red districts. So you should be able to get these folks. It's, um, it's I think, in part, uh, the administration has not been willing to, as, as Jigger says, make the sausage and get their hands dirty with the, it's You know, it's not a great, beautiful, clean process making legislation. And they haven't really gotten in and gotten dirty with these guys yet. And part of that is because there's been so much obstructionism. I think that might start be breaking loose. I mean, again, I'm an optimist, but I'm, I'm hopeful with that. Mm. Well, I think that, you know, in the the tax reform bill is a perfect example of where we could actually have it break loose and do really good work there. 
Well, that brings us to something that Catherine has been talking about, the possibility for tax reform and where energy fits in to that picture. People skeptical that any sort of comprehensive or even partial tax reform bill will get passed this year. But Catherine, you think there is a possibility. What's going to be in there and how does it relate to energy? Yeah. Okay. So I wouldn't say total reform. I would say reform-ish. Okay. <laughs> um, but so I've been meeting with um, House Ways and Means committee member offices in GOP offices specifically, and so Dave with Camp. Yeah, that- and leadership. You know, and all the folks on his committee, and also with leadership, and everyone pretty much says this. Um, the camp, uh, you know, they were aiming for before the August recess, but because of the IRS, uh, kerfuffle or scandal or whatever you want to call it, because of that, they've been kind of delayed a little bit. Um, but, but at least by early September, he's going to put, it's going to, a bill is going to appear in their inboxes. These are GOP people who are saying this, it's going to appear in their inboxes and there will be a markup schedule that afternoon in committee. And they're all going to have their, they're all going to take aim. Well, what's interesting is that there has actually been a process with this. So um, Dave Camp set up a bunch of working groups. Well, there's one on energy um, that Gerlach and Thompson led. And those, and it was all, uh, these were all very bipartisan. And what they did was they set up a website and took a bunch of comments and they got a gazillion comments. So everybody, all the organizations submitted comments, all the major trade groups, a lot of companies, a lot of individuals submitted comments. So they had a lot to come through. And joint tax committee took all those comments and they kind of tried to put them into one enormous document that synthesized all these comments. And uh, what was great is to see who made that comment list and and who didn't, but, but they tried to synthesize it and put it all together. And then they also in that same document listed all the provisions that are existing. And what I found interesting when I went through the energy provisions is that um, fossil versus renewable. So 13 fossil fuel provisions have absolutely no expiration date. They go forever. Um, Whereas uh, 14 renewable provisions have expiration dates pretty quickly. So there's a big difference between the fossil and their, and their tax credits are really large and complex versus the renewables ones, which are really, really targeted. Um, There's so many more renewables that actually expire and not very many fossil ones that expire. Um, I think something will come out. I think, for example, they're going to have a few ideological things. So they'll have the 25% corporate tax rate in there. They're going to have some fixes for charitable contributions and things. On the energy side, here are a couple of things I think might happen. So MLPs, if you really did tax reform, you, you, you could make an argument that we should just get rid of the whole MLP construct altogether. It's been helping the oil and gas guys forever. Um, let's just get rid of the whole thing. I, that's not going to happen. These guys aren't going to give that up. But MLP parity, which has been embraced on both sides of the aisle and in both chambers, might have a shot at getting in. So that's adding other pieces into the MLP construct so that you can do electricity storage, you can do renewables, you can do efficiency and, you know, form your corporations in that in that manner. So that might be in there. And that has bipartisan support. Yes, it does. The, unfortunately, some of the folks that like that also think that this would be a substitute for the renewable energy credits. And so, you know, that would mean I've, I've heard the production tax credit is at the top of the list for, you know, it's already going to expire at the end of this year. Um, you know, even though the language will allow them to continue for a couple more years building wind plants. I mean, I think 
that's at the top of the list for getting cut. So we'll have to see kind of what comes out of that. I think there may also be an interesting, um, some interesting R&D tax credit fixes for pre-revenue companies um, because a lot of people can't take advantage of R&D tax credits. And there might be um, some technology-neutral manufacturing or innovation tax credits. So, so those are some of the things that could affect the clean tech sector. Um, so I think something will come out. I think they'll throw it onto the floor and, and, you know, if they get a few Dems, they can pass it. It's going to not be pretty at all. There may be some gems in there, as, as Jigger says, there may be some good things in there. There are also going to be some pretty awful things in there, but Max Baucus, chairman of finance, can't do anything until the house moves. And my suspicion is he'll have something ready to go so that when the house passes something, he'll take it take the number, throw the language out and put his own language in and do something on the Senate side. And then what what remains to be seen is will they be able to negotiate something that they can both both houses can agree on before we start getting really into the 2014 re-election season. And I think it's all going to have have to happen in 2013 in order for that, you know, to really get anything done. Jigger, what would you want to see if you saw some sort of tax reform package? What would you want need to see on the clean energy side uh, that you think would level the playing field with fossil fuels? As we said, there's this disparity between many tax credits coming up for expiration and many fossil fuel uh, tax incentives that are permanent. You, you have somewhat of a counterintuitive take on incentives like the PTC and, and, and uh, supporting renewables through to the tax structure generally. What would you want to see? Well, I think that if you if you try to separate these issues into two camps, right, so you've got the deployment camp and then the innovation camp. On the deployment side, Something like wind, I mean, 62% or so of all of the new assets we added last year were, were wind and renewables. So it's not like we're losing on that front, right? So the real challenge for deployment is figuring out how do we actually create capital pools for deployment, right? And one of the challenges for capital pools, particularly in the PTC environment, but also in the ITC environment for the investment tax credit for solar, is that you end up with um, investors who can't participate, because they can't use these tax credits, and because they can't use them, they are just turned off by the entire sector. And that includes a lot of individuals who'd like to participate. So when you think about the $100 billion that Chesapeake Gas raised for all of its natural gas work, a lot of that money came from individuals. And so one of the challenges that I see and where I feel counterintuitive is I think if we had a, a scheduled phase-out of our tax credits, I'm not saying that we abruptly get rid of it, although that might happen with wind here, but with solar, I think is if we actually proactively phase out our tax credit to 10% in 2017, which we can afford to do. Uh, you saw the you know, first solar project that which, came across. Which is going to happen. Yeah, well, and I, and I want that to happen because I think that if we signal now to the investment community that this is a good thing and this is where we're going and we're going to give you access to MLPs and REITs and other types of structure to create capital pools, you would be, I just think, amazed at how ready the marketplace is to create those capital pools. And once the capital pools are there, we've never had a problem with developing projects on the ground. Our problem has always been getting enough investment dollars to feed the beast. Yeah, I totally agree with Jigger on that. I think 
having I mean the, the issue is certainty for investors. So if they know that this is gonna that something's going to phase out over time and they can count on it, that is a totally different picture than having every other year up and down not knowing, you know, the entire supply chain is abrupted because they don't interrupt it because they don't know what's gonna happen. I, I agree that something that's very planned and very scheduled that doesn't send people off a cliff is gonna be much healthier for investors. And do you think that congressional Republicans would be receptive to fossil fuel tax credit phase outs with uh, uh, scheduled phase outs for renewable energy credits? Or do you think they want to see something more immediate on the renewable side? What is the what's at play here and what is acceptable to leading Republicans who may help guide these decisions? Well, I can I can start there. I mean, Catherine's probably better at that question than me. But I but I guess what I would say is that um, you know, I, I'm on the board of Greenpeace, and so I get both sides of um, of the clean tech sector as well as the environmental sector. There's a fundamental disconnect between the environmental sector and the clean tech sector in terms of what it is that we want. And once we figure out what we want together, then if we went to the Democrats that actually listened to us and said, please do not, you know, basically announce on stage that you're going to exit the process – unless the fossil fuel subsidies go away um, without, the, without the wind and solar stuff going away. If, if you got them to the table and they were saying, look, we'll phase out our tax credits if you phase out your tax credits, I think you actually have a political message that can sell. Because the Republicans want to be able to say that we basically have a scalp on our wall and that scalp is the PTC. And if they can actually say that out of this, out of this process – I think that they would be willing to phase out some of the tax credits on the fossil fuel side, um, which, you know, from from my perspective is a pyrrhic victory. But I mean, where we're really winning on the the fossil fuel side is, you know, Sierra Club's coal campaign, the the work that we're doing at EPA. It's not like the fossil fuel industry is going to get, you know, hammered because their tax credits go down a little bit. And, and we did see the American Wind Energy Association offer up a phase out of the PTC last year during when Paul Ryan released his budget uh, during the broad uh, budget talks in, in Washington. Uh, they, they were sort of the first renewable player to put that on the table. It seemed like more of a messaging campaign but uh, certainly something that people are talking about. And I know that, that you know, this phase-out conversation does anger some environmentalists who say, well, the fossil fuel industries have enjoyed a century of support. They've reached this scale. They don't need these anymore. The renewables industry still needs subsidies for for some time to reach the scale that the fossil fuel industries are at. And this it's, it seems like a pretty contentious debate. Uh, but uh, here in Washington, I'm definitely hearing more talk about th- this compromise and, and talking about these phase-outs. So I do want to shift gears here. And uh, speaking of government incentives and government support of the sector, talk about Tesla, which recently repaid its loan guarantee, its $465 million loan guarantee that it got in 2010 from the Department of Energy. Uh, the first a uh, company to repay its loan guarantee through this program back. Um, certainly, electric vehicle advocates were rejoicing. A good story for those who have been supporting the loan guarantee program for years after some a few high-profile bankruptcies and uh, a contentious debate over that program uh, in Congress and in the election year. So uh, let's just go into the importance of this. Catherine, is this a significant 
uh, notch in the belt of those running the loan guarantee program. Do you think this is an important thing? Well, yes and no. I mean, the important thing is, look, it worked. It, it worked. The, the program worked in this instance. It, it moved something um, that has not that doesn't just have impact uh, for the vehicle, but also for solar, because Tesla is teaming up um, with its sister company, Solar City, to do solar and storage applications. So my sense is like that is a great thing. The the problem is, I mean, the loan guarantee program is not going anywhere. I mean, they're, they're not going to be doing anything else. Um, I think it would be it's worth reading for folks. The um, Jonathan Silver was interviewed by CNN, and it's pretty by the uh, Fortune, and it, it's um, it's it's a pretty interesting interview and his take on the success of that program. Now, you know, that he's been out for a while and has a little bit of uh, you know space. Yeah, what did he say? I'm interested. I haven't heard that interview. Yeah, I mean, he sort of said, look, this wasn't supposed to replace the private sector at all. This was supposed to, to to take care of a gap that existed and that there was a lot more success than they got credit for. You know, what they got pinged on was the failures. And unfortunately, the department and the administration was unable to to message, you know, in a very powerful way about the successes that they were having, which were substantial. Yeah. And I found it interesting, uh, Jonathan Silver, now that he's been out of DOE for a while, he's been at uh, the think tank Third Way. He's now being much more aggressive in his messaging on Twitter uh, and in this interview you talk about. He he is certainly sort of hitting back against many of the allegations that there was political corruption, that the program is a failure. And I, I find that quite fascinating that he's out there now defending this program and um, and defending himself. Uh, Jigger, what do you think about the Tesla loan guarantee generally? Do you think this is a significant announcement? And what do you think about the health of Tesla generally? Sure. Well, I think just on the loan guarantee, Jonathan and I are very good friends and we talk regularly on this. And, you know, I, I think he would agree, although I won't put words in his mouth, but my own perspective is there's complete tone deafness in terms of the way the loan guarantee program was really structured, right? I mean, ultimately, where the loan guarantee program is going to have huge success is helping Sun Power, Sun Edison, First Solar, other companies to build large projects because they're not going to lose money there, right? They basically just provided a subsidy by saying that the interest rate for the debt would be three or four percent as opposed to seven or eight percent, which is what it would have been had they just had to go to the private sector. And even then, they may not have been able to raise the debt. And so the loan guarantee was actually a really good way for them to get lower cost debt to be able to get these projects off the ground. Um, in terms of actually supporting companies, I do think there's a philosophical difference here. I mean, I don't believe that the government actually is very good at picking winners and losers. And I don't think politically it's very good for the government to do that because every time there's a loser, they're absolutely going to get crushed, right? And so so it's. I think the lesson learned from the loan guarantee program is you know, focus on the stuff that's low risk like getting projects through the valley of death as opposed to figuring out companies. The fact that Tesla succeeded here is great, but Tesla succeeded in a place where car companies have always had really interesting successes, right? Where you create a very custom car, you get a whole bunch of rich people to pay up for it up front, and then you, you, know, you, you show that you've got real volume. So this last quarter, I think Tesla actually beat out Audi in terms of volumes, which is awesome. But we've had that before with Ferrari or DeLorean or Lotus or other types of specialty car manufacturers who go after rich people who are willing to pay cash for it. 
after their loan guarantee program was paid back, they announced this big supercharger network that they wanted to build from coast to coast with uh, storage systems and solar built in. Uh, They uh, announced profitability for the first time in their 10-year history in the first quarter of this year. At the same time, however, we see uh, Fisker Automotive continuing to face troubles on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, another Chinese company, the Chinese company that bought A123 Systems, looking like uh, it wants to buy Fisker. Um, we saw uh, Coda, the Coda bankruptcy. Uh, Better Place, the is, uh, Israeli battery swapping company, went bankrupt. So some good stories out of Tesla, some bad stories elsewhere in the EV market. Uh, Catherine, what are we seeing here? What's what's your take on this onslaught of news and EVs? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the way technology works. I mean, you get some some models that work and some models that don't work. I mean, that's kind of like the way, you know, the the way the the technology cycle works. I think the the business models, um, you know, the business model for better place didn't, you know, it wasn't really sustainable in for them. I I don't I don't think that I think that was always one of the big questions is this really going to work and it kind of kind of didn't work. Um, with Coda, they actually have a technology um, that now they're going to use for energy storage. So I think you're going to see Coda in a different kind of iteration on the um, on the storage side because they actually had it, had a technology. I mean, with Coda, they were trying to start an, a whole new OEM, and that is so hard to do. Um, and they also were trying to make it for, for the everyday person. And I think, you know, whereas Tesla had this, um, you know, super, you know, souped up vehicle that everybody drools over, you know, nobody was drooling over the Coda sedan. Uh, you know, it was like a regular person's car, and yet it still was going to cost more um, just because, you know, because it was a new company, a new OEM trying to make its way. So I think um, this is just the way t- the technology cycle works. I don't know if you'd agree with me, Jigger. No, I agree with you. I, I do think, though, that that strategy matters and 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 working the niches matter. Solyndra went out of business because Solyndra didn't focus on its niche, right, which was um, high wind locations for solar panels. Um, they decided they were going to be the best at rooftop solar panels, you know, and large, which was a dumb move on their part. And better places the same, right? This whole battery swapping thing is awesome for places like taxi cabs, right? They tested this with taxi cabs in Amsterdam as well as in Japan. Worked just brilliant model, right? I mean, the taxi cab drivers loved it. The people who took them loved it. Everything was going great. But they were like, you know, if that's all we do in the world, then we would consider ourselves failures. So they ended up working on four continents simultaneously, doing all of these things without having a real success in Israel and Denmark. And so I fault the company. I think that the technology and the business model innovation there could have worked if they actually would have focused on their niche. Okay, let's hit our last topic, and that is what's happening on the state level. For the last year and a half, a number of conservative groups Uh, Americans for Prosperity, the American Legislative Exchange Council, have explicitly said that their priority is to go into states and help craft legislation to repeal renewable energy standards. They have seen support from uh, state legislators uh, who believe that renewable energy standards are a violation of the free market and that they should be reduced or eliminated altogether. We've seen 20 bills introduced around the country, uh, if not more, in in various states. Uh, And so far, what's interesting is that um, 
All of those efforts have failed. Two notable ones in Kansas and in North Carolina. There are still a lot of bills in North Carolina floating around, uh, but so far they have failed. And interestingly, on the utility side, you know, we've seen utilities run into they're, they're meeting their renewable energy standard requirements ahead of time. Uh, see no need to. Uh, increased procurement. And so there's a battle among regulators, solar and renewable energy companies and utilities on how to increase targets and incentives within utilities. Um, but we've seen some more success stories in states actually increasing their targets in Minnesota, potentially New York, uh, in Colorado. So Jigger, what's going on here? For a long time, we've talked about doom and gloom. We've talked about a political push to repeal these uh, serious conflicts between utilities and renewable energy companies, yet the news is still looking pretty good. Well, you know, the, the, in politics, what really matters is not how many people like your Facebook page, but how many people actually show up when you tell them to. And with the Tea Party, they really showed up compared to, let's say, Occupy Wall Street. Whereas in the, at the state level, we show up. I mean, when you look at solar enthusiasts, there's hundreds, if not thousands of them that show up every day and you know lobby their congressmen, go to state fairs, talk to the governor. And that's exactly how Minnesota introduced this groundbreaking new approach where they not only added to their renewable portfolio standard, but it was, it was additive. It wasn't like a carve out of their standard. They said, we want this much of you know, solar to be added to the, to the grid and it will be on top of the existing standard. Which, you know, really is, it, it's, it, that's not playing defense. That's an enormous bout of offense. And so, so I, I mean, I, I just give real kudos to the amount of just real passion there is at the state level for our issues. Yeah, and what's interesting about that Minnesota law is that it's 1.5% uh, of solar electricity by 2020, and 20% of that has to be from systems less than 20 kilowatts. So definitely um, unprecedented something that forms incentives for community solar gardens where people can pool their resources and and uh, invest in small community-based projects. Really, really interesting. Um, Catherine, what's your take on this? Have you been following much on the state level? Do you see that – you mentioned earlier in the show, all politics is local. This is something yeah. that I see time and time again. I think when you look at uh, the national politics, they are very different from local politics. Do you see the same thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you look at North Carolina, um, which, you know, lost Obama, one one in the first time, lost him the second time. But North Carolina's economic development has all been in clean energy. I mean, they have a huge thriving sector. And and people realize this is good for them. This is good for local jobs, their jobs, their, you know, their own jobs. It's good for the economy. And they also, I actually believe they think it's good for the environment as well. I mean, I've, I've talked to, I've been in North Carolina and talked to a lot of folks who say, you know, People, you put a solar system out there, people protect it. They think of it as this is a great thing to have on my land or on public land and I'll protect it here. And and that's what you saw happen when they when they tried to pass that bill and it failed. Um, and I think that's how, happening everywhere. And as Jigger says, it's people showing up. It's people actually understanding that it impacts them. Whereas D.C. looks like so far away, it's this weird little bubble that these all of these guys live in. It's much 
harder to impact you know, on the national scale, although I, I also saying that believe that you know, national policy has a, a huge impact, especially I would I think on investors, because, you know, as you look at the SREC, so in Massachusetts, the SRECs are already used up and a lot of the projects are left out there have to be renego- renegotiated in New Jersey. The same thing happened. To me, like that's such a disaggregated approach. If you did that on a much more larger national pool level, you wouldn't have that issue. So that makes the case for doing something on a more of a national policy effort. Um, but yeah, the politics are local. So let's move into our final segment where uh, we talk to our panel and hear about something we don't know happening in the news. We're going to discuss some surprising or novel stories that are going on. And uh, let's hear from you, Catherine. What do our listeners need to know about what you see going on? Yeah, so I've been following A123. And, um, you know, they went through uh, Chapter 11. Um, they they came out purchased by a, a Chinese company. But their technology essentially was still incredibly viable. And they just announced June 3rd that they commissioned a megawatt for one hour duration project in Hawaii, which moves them out of the just ancillary services frequency regulation mode into really doing much more peak shifting, wind curtailment relief. Um, this is a this is big news. And it's and it's great news for A123, which is now A123 Energy. Energy solutions instead of A123 systems, and I'm glad they decided not to call themselves B456 or whatever the whatever was in the discussion. But but I think that, that this is all good for for energy storage, and it's good for companies like this um, who the jobs are in Massachusetts, so um, and and in Hawaii, of course, the local jobs. But uh, I, I think the, the, that's a good signal. So the story goes on. Jigger, how about you? Tell us something we don't know. Well, you know, I just came back from a long trip uh, to Mongolia. Uh, it's World Environment Day, and uh, the UN wants us to know that, you know, roughly 25% of all the food uh, gets wasted in the world after harvest uh, from the fields of um, the, where, where we pick the food. And uh, and that's a huge, colossal problem that, to me, actually has big clean tech repercussions because, you know, the amount of uh, innovation that we've had for the electricity sector and the transportation sector, I think, can be ported over, like, for instance... Um, hydroponic greenhouse technology, but also uh, all the RFID chip technology that can be used to actually track a lot of this food across the supply chain and figure out how, where it's getting wasted. It's just a, a huge opportunity and one that has, I think the UN said 35% or something of all carbon emissions in the world stem from agriculture. So I'm pretty excited about um, about that as a huge new clean tech opportunity. And are you doing a lot of international work right now? I am. You know, I, I think that um, that a lot of the arguments that we're making here in the U.S. are just completely starkly obvious in places like Mongolia where, you know, they have something on the order of 40 percent of their population without access to modern energy services. Yet, you know, Rio Tinto is investing six and a half billion dollars into a new mine there. So there's plenty of money sloshing around in the system in Mongolia and they just need access to clean tech solutions. Well, moving back to the U.S., my story is again centered here in Washington. And late last month, the uh, Department of Energy issued a long-awaited microwave efficiency rule 
it got virtually no attention until some people in the environmental community realized that way down at the bottom of the press release, the administration had increased its calculations for the social cost of carbon. And this is a you know somewhat complicated calculation determining what the environmental, long-term environmental, social, and health consequences of carbon emissions are. And they're calculated for one metric ton of CO2 uh, to roughly agree on a carbon price. In 2010, the administration put together this interagency panel, this working group that determined what the social cost of carbon should be and how it should rise each year and formed that calculation off of the latest climate science. Well, what's interesting is that the new estimates, which the administration didn't announce and and put at the bottom of this press release in microwave efficiency standards, are 60% higher than they were three years ago. And of course, this has huge implications for any regulation that the administration or other departments or agencies puts out, um, particularly within the EPA as they look at pricing carbon in the electricity sector for new and existing power plants. So this does have very significant economic consequences for how those regulations will play out for polluters. And all of a sudden, now that people are reporting on it, it has uh, turned into a, a somewhat big issue over how the administration it deals with greenhouse gases in its second term. So I found that to be really fascinating, and I think it says a lot about that the administration really is working on some of these climate things behind the scenes, but I found it really interesting that they didn't even announce the fact that these changes were made and that it had to come out through some obscure press release on efficiency standards. Um, so with that, it is time to wrap up the show. Great dialogue for our first program. I'm really happy about this show. You can read about all the stories that we covered on this podcast at our website, greentechmedia.com, and we'll provide a few links to stories on our podcast page for your reference. If you like the show, please pass a link on to your friends and colleagues. Write about it, tweet about it, Facebook it, do what you can to spread the word, and we thank you very much for listening. Um, our theme music is produced by Chris Stoltz, and the podcast is produced by Green Tech Media. Catherine Hamilton, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. And Jigger Shah, good to talk to you. Thanks a lot. This is great. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang. We look forward to having you with us next week.